is Tuesday, May 14th, 2019. Time for episode 83 of the Barnhart Podcast. Ian, have you been getting a lot of WhatsApp calls on your phone? Not anymore. Um, I did away with that. I had it very briefly and just between you lobbying me and kind of, you know, our conversations about cybersecurity as, as you have been paying a lot of attention to that stuff and obviously applying your expertise to it. But then just on a, on a user, on a user level, um, I did not like having it at all. I did not like having um, those messages just constantly flowing in. And I got rid of all of that stuff, all of those apps. And now I'm down to just one. And it's kind of, as I understand it, it's it's at, it's at your uh, recommendation, Super Nerd. I'd never heard of it before. I think it's relatively new. It's supposed to be super secret. The name of it shall not even be uttered. And the only person I use it with is you. I'm basically, my position is anyone else who wants to get in contact with me, um, if you type my name into any search engine, said search engine will vomit my email address and contact info into your lap. And that's just what people need to use. Um, even so, Alta Vista has your correct email address. Yes, even Alta Vista. Even Alta Vista has my correct email address. It's never changed throughout the years. That's what you use if you want to get a hold of me. Um, but apparently, apparently, shock even though WhatsApp completely assures people that everything is secure and everything is encrypted front to back, top to bottom, zipped up tight, super nerd, super nerd, can it be possible that uh, we've all been being spied on with those those WhatsApp calls and text messages? Well, on the general principle that WhatsApp is owned by Facebook, I recommend everybody who uses that currently to stop using it. And if you want to figure out, okay, well, all my friends use it, what should I switch to? Yeah, email at supernerdmedia.com. I'll give you two or three. Actually, I'll just tell you right now. Signal is one option. Wire is another one. That's what we're using now instead of Skype. And the audio quality is way better than Skype. Uh, because Skype is, unlike Skype, Wire doesn't have a wiretap in the middle of it where, and I'm not even joking about that, with Skype, Microsoft literally is wiretapping the audio to do real-time transla- real transcripts and translations. So if we were having a conversation with uh, a third party who was speaking Chinese, and this was over Skype, we could get a real-time translation of the English of what they were saying coming up. That's called a wiretap in the middle, and whether or not it's for nefarious purposes is beside the point. It's just there's other things in the middle, and uh, wire doesn't have that. But the reason I bring it up at the beginning of the of the podcast is that that uh, the, a massive uh, vulnerability uh, was just announced with WhatsApp. There, there's a, an attack that was written by a company out of I, I think it's it's written or authored by a company called the NSO Group. And the attack is called Pegasus, and NSO is out of out of Israel. They're all a bunch of alumni from Unit 8200. And if you know what that is, awesome. Um, you're one of one in 10,000. But uh, apparently the, this vulnerability is so sneaky that— Wait, what are we all Google searching now? Unit 8200? <laughs> it, it's the Israeli version of the NSA, uh, but they're more go. tightly co- uh, coupled in with the, with the, the military and, and their stuff. A, a former colleague of mine used to be Israeli Special Forces, and he said, yeah, the, the guys in 8200 are a bunch of jerks because they, they think they're smarter than everybody else. But uh, the, the Israeli version of Silicon Valley has a lot of their the alumni of 8200. The point is that every one of the 1.5 billion people on WhatsApp, uh, you can have your account exploited and have spyware installed on your phone just by receiving a phone call. So you've got that to look forward to. And honestly, 
I, I've said this before, and it's it's and, and I'm not even being uh, hateful about it. it. Just you cannot trust Facebook in any way, shape, or form. Any yep. any company run by something that looks like a cyborg or androgynous being, how can you trust Mark Zuckerberg? Honestly, I mean, he even said it in the, in the depositions back when uh, they were being sued by the Winklevi that um, people just seem to trust me. A bunch of dumb f's. <laughs> I mean, this is mm. Mark Zuckerberg's own own testimony that came out. They always tend to announce themselves. So yes, agreed. Just on a personality level, red flags, up, up, up. And then just knowing what we know, knowing all of these things that we know. I mean, come on, come on. And just ask yourself, if you're still on Facebook and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, there, there's just no way. There's just no way. Um, seriously, you need to ask yourself in all serious, in all seriousness, you need to start asking yourself questions about addiction um, about, um, obsessive compulsive type behaviors. Why can't you, why can't you get off of this? Why can't you let go of this? Why do you have to have this horrible, bizarre, um, what is it? Psycho spiritual crutch that you can't get through the day. If you're not screwing around on Facebook, on Twitter, on on Instagram, on whatever whatever it is, I mean, seriously, step back, you know, take a look at yourself from the outside looking in. S- try to have some some level of self objectivity. Think about who you were, what you were like, and what your life was like ten years ago before all of this garbage started, and just look at the difference. Look at the quality of your life. And please, you know, super nerd and I both begging you, praying you for your own sanity, for your own spiritual welfare. If you have a family, if you if you have a spouse, if you have a family, you're you're a lot of people justify it by saying, well, it's how I keep in contact with my family. Um, it's uh, this this business, this social media addiction is also how many, many marriages right now, as we speak, are going down the drain. What uh, you see um, links on Drudge every now and again, 25%, 33% of all divorce filings have specifically cited Facebook, Facebook addiction, um, Facebook affairs. This is another interesting thing that comes up. Guys, you know, adultery and the whole the whole notion of adulterating a marriage. There are ways to do that that have nothing that do not involve any sort of physical contact, physically having sex, anything like that. You can adulterate someone's marriage from the other side of the planet. Let's say, for example, a man in the United States is is online, is on social media all day, every day with a woman who he's never met face to face on the other side of the planet. Let's say a man in the United States is, you know, talking about the most intimate aspects of his life, of his marriage, complaining about his marriage, just completely emotionally attached to and emotionally dependent on a woman who's on the other side of the planet. Are you telling me that that is not a species of adulteration of a marriage? There are certain things that a, that a husband or wife should not discuss with anybody 
anybody outside of their spouse and perhaps maybe um, a priest in the confessional. There are certain things that you just shouldn't be talking about or doing with someone who is not your spouse. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to involve, um, you know, phone sex or talk, talking about it. It can, it can be emotional type stuff that, that if you engage in those behaviors on social media, which that's the vector for all of this, obviously, if you are engaging in those behaviors, you are adulterating your marriage because of the breach of trust, because you're bringing an outside party into the intimate goings-on of your marriage that a person that has no business being there shouldn't be there. Um, and just the time. If you're spending all of this time online, on social media, you are by definition not spending that time with your spouse, with your children, doing the things that you need to do in as in the proper role that you have in your family there's so much damage and then i mean and then we've gone on before on on other episodes of the of the barnhart podcast about you know the waste of time um the temptation to wrath the temptation to impurity etc etc um there's there's just so little positive that comes out of any of these things I'm, and, you know, you keep seeing people reporting time after time, hey, I, I, I closed my Facebook account, I, cl I closed my Twitter account, I closed my Instagram account, um, the quality of my life has gone through the roof, have canceled television, have canceled uh, cable satellite, and there's uh, news just out today, another reason why you need to do this is public television has just run one of their most popular children's cartoons. It's been on for over 20 years. Um, it's not something that I ever watched because it was it was it started after I was a, ch a cartoon watching child, but it's been on for years and years. It's called Arthur, and apparently, of course, to be expected, major character on this children's cartoon on PBS. So we're talking broadcast television here, um, not not cable, not anything, something that, you know, a kid with access to a normal television that has access to now what is now digital over the air broadcast signal could turn on this television. And here is a children's cartoon, a cartoon aimed at children four to eight years old, major male character in the show is, is revealed to be wallowing unrepentantly in the sins of Sodom and aped the sacrament of marriage with another male character also wallowing unrepentantly in the sins of Sodom. They're pushing this stuff at children on broadcast television, sick vampires that they are. So, I mean, just all of these things in totality. And if you just step back away from it, you can see how obvious, how obvious it is, how unhealthy these things are. But getting people to take that first step um, T TV, it's getting, people are getting better about TV, but it's still bad. Now the struggle and now the fight is this social media crap. You don't need these paradigms. You don't need these things. A lot of times they're an addiction. They're extraordinarily detrimental to the family. They are another prong in Satan's 
you know, trident of attack against the family is social media, even though Facebook and these things market themselves as an ability to keep in contact with your family. I have to be able to send pictures. I have to do this. I have to do that. Uh, well, you know, you can email pictures. Um, you don't need to be on social media. Go ahead. I was going to say another thing too. Yes. A, a lot of people, their families, unfortunately do use Facebook as the default way of staying in touch. I just uh, attended a family uh, wedding this past weekend, and the fun part is, since I'm not on Facebook, I actually get to talk to people to see what they've been up to. I don't say, oh, yeah, I've seen all your stuff on Facebook. What's new? Anything since uh, last night? I right? actually get to talk to my, my family and say and, and, and catch up with them as opposed to, yeah, I saw what you did. I don't want to talk to you now. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was at dinner tonight and just happened to be you know, it's kind of, it's one of those places, kind of a, a inexpensive restaurant where people are kind of seated all together and in, in almost a bench-like situation at almost big picnic table-like things. And I was just sitting and talking to um, the couple next to me who were probably, I don't know, they were probably in their 60s, I would guess. And they were lamenting the same thing that there, it seemed to them that their children just didn't have the same ability and capacity to sit down and just converse with somebody. You just just sit down and talk. They can they can do all kinds of things with their right thumb with their phone, you know. And the 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 woman, the wife even remarked that she had observed her own children texting people who were in the same room. And but the capacity to just sit down, look someone in the eye, and carry on a conversation is actually, ironically, in this age of quote unquote communication, where everything is about the ability to quote unquote communicate, look what's being lost so rapidly is in fact the ability to just sit down and talk to somebody. Uh, even if it's a perfect stranger, but these these kids today they struggle to talk to their friends, their intimates, their family members. They can they can social media all day long, and uh, I've said this before. It's weird. You'll be you'll be walking around, and you know how you do in the context of just you know being out and about during the day, and you'll see people with their phone, and you'll just catch a glimpse of the screen of the phone, not where you can read anything, but you can just see that they have some sort of a messaging application open. And what I've noticed among among kids is that a lot of times I'll look at the screen, and the screen it won't even be words; it will just be emojis. You know, four emojis of happy face, four emojis of heart, four emojis of whatever, and it's just what what are you what are you even doing? They're all communicate. They're they're becoming subverbal before our very eyes. Ironically enough, in the age of hyper communication and and information everywhere, either that or it's a new form of hieroglyphics. I've I've heard commercials about how kids literally and and if you have kids who do this I, I don't have kids of this age and my kids don't have cell phones so but apparently kids literally can have full communications just with emojis mm-hmm. i honestly don't understand it i'm old okay i get that even even though i'm not on facebook I, i'm 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 too old to to care about this stuff i was using sms when it first came out in the 90s so yeah i, I don't understand the whole emoji thing we don't need it anyway well, that was another aspect of the conversation is that um, the kids, uh, the, 
I brought up the point that sometimes people can take offense on um, messaging apps that if, if you, for example, respond to somebody's question simply by saying capital Y E S period send, apparently that can be taken as brusqueness. It can be taken as you're mad, you're upset. And the woman piped up and she said, yes, that's true. Um, my, she said, my daughter was trying to explain to me one time that if you put the period after the yes, that that carries some sort of a, that carries some sort of a meaning. And that does, uh, in some circles, that does mean that you are being brusque and you're being, oh, what's the word? Um, you know, just short, you're being short. Yes. Um, and so, and I remarked that, yeah, I, I am pretty careful that when I am using these messaging apps to go ahead and make liberal use of the little happy face emoji or whatever, just to make sure, just to make sure that there's no, no confusion about anything. I have one friend who will, who will use the word as a, as a positive response to a question will type capital Y E A H. Yeah. And, and I explained to this person uh, that typing out Y-E-A-H sometimes looks like it has an, an eye-rolling quality to it. It looks like it has a, a kind of a sarcastic, uh, not happy, yes, I'm going along with this, but I'm not thrilled about it sort of a quality. Isn't it fascinating how we can read all of these things into, into just simple, simple things like Y-E-S period or Y-E-A-H period? Um, well, it's my habit that that I re I tend to respond to questions by text by by replying with regard to your previous query. I answer in the affirmative. Now that sounds like a lot of text to type out, but iPhones are great. You just set up a five letter macro and it fills it in for you. That's right. Yeah, it'll do the auto auto complete for you if you type that out enough times. But uh, <laughs> that but that can that can sound angry too. I mean, uh, you wouldn't be offended by that if I sent it to you. But then, thankfully, as I reiterated at the top of at the top of the show, I am to the point now where there's just literally a handful, maybe one, two, three, four, five people with whom I'm on these these messaging apps. I just don't I don't like it. I don't want anything to do with it. I didn't like this business of, you know, looking at my phone and here's all these messages from people. So um, I was, a, a new phone was donated to me a few months back and it necessitated getting a new SIM card. And I availed myself of the opportunity to go ahead and get that new SIM card, change that cell phone number and just clear all of that out. And now anybody who wants to get a hold of me, everybody's in the same boat pretty much. And that is, um, that is, you can send me an email just like everybody else. It, I, and I don't know, understand why, why that's any different or substandard. It comes to exactly the same device. It's near instantaneous. Um, why? It still seems archaic though, especially in the workplace. One of the big things, at least among programmers, I don't know about people like accountants. Um, if you're listening in Dallas and you're an accountant, let me know. But um, at least among, uh, programmers and technical people, we tend to use a, an application called Slack, which is a, a instant messaging uh, application. It, it's group chat, basically, with a bunch of channels for different projects and different teams and whatnot. And we tend to do a lot of our communication through that. 
And when somebody sends you an email, it has this sense of formality, like it's been carved on stone or something. And it, it made me laugh the first time I really started thinking about that. It's like it's mentally half a step away from literally printing out a memo that you wrote in Word and then passed out around the office. It's, it, it, That's funny. It's this whole idea of, of well, plus it's logged for seven years for retention and all that garbage. I don't uh, know. I, I don't know about the chat, but uh, it, it it's it just has this sense of when it's email, it's official. When it's when it's on Slack, it's not official. It's just we're we're communicating and trying to we're we're, we're either goofing around or we're actually getting work done. But it's not doesn't have that same official character. Well, I, I don't I, know I, if this is just programmers or if if other. If other professions have the same type of thing, whether it's uh, Skype for Office or whatever they call that now, or uh, Same Time, or, or all the all these different, you know, commercial professional chat programs. Well, I was just thinking exactly what you just said. Um, I have e- the, one of the reasons that email is fantastic. I have full email archives going back now for years, years and years and years. And within the past two and a half years or so, three years or so, and especially within the past several months, boy, oh boy, has it come in handy that I have full email archives for every conversation. And all I have to do is type in the first three letters of somebody's name. And oops, there's absolutely every email conversation that has been had. And like I said, especially within the last few months, this has come in extremely handy. Um, handy isn't even the word for it. It's been, it's been extremely important. And I have thanked God that I had those email archives because, you know, if, if somebody wants to make some sort of a false accusation, I can produce, I can produce full archives, you know, defending myself. I learned that in business. I mean, that was a big thing in, in the commodity brokerage business is, man, you save everything. And by law, you had to save everything. You had to save paper copies. You know, one one entire um, room in my office was dedicated. That's the room where all the bankers boxes were. And you just had you had stacks and stacks and stacks of bankers boxes sorted by year and by type of content, order tickets, client statements, just absolutely everything. And then I, of course, immediately when I started my firm, I committed to having everything double. So everything was was both in hard paper form and everything was also in digital form. And so, you know, everything was just backed up 12 ways from Sunday. And again, it you you think, ah, uh, why are why do we have to do this? Oh boy, because if if something happens and you need to go back you've got it all right there and you're glad you're glad you do hopefully you don't really ever ever need it and it's no biggie but it's it's an insurance policy and it's for your own protection and i want to have that and think about it if there are things this is this is another issue that's germane in this in this particular conversation if there are things that you don't that you're saying and doing that you don't want to exist uh, in any sort of a permanent way that you don't want to exist on email. You only want these things to exist in, um, you know, archives of private Facebook messenger groups or whatever like that. Maybe you need to stop and ask yourself if what you're saying in those contexts 
is something that you need to be saying. Maybe some custody, some custody of the mouth needs to be happening at that point. Um, why is it that you don't want there to be archives of this? Now, this is not that I, as if I'm saying that you know Zuckerberg and all these people have rights to surveil. I'm saying it's for for your own for your own good and for your own self protection, and for your own um, maybe self self censorship, uh, modesty in conversation, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, just trying to keep a lid on on things that you are saying. If you have things, if you have archives that you would not want the public to ever see. Well, I think the question needs to be asked, should you have ever said and done those things in the first place if you're so insistent that they that they shouldn't be publicly revealed or publicly available or archived in any way? And that's an interesting question. So I'm I'm convinced that less uh, less instant messaging or less messaging apps, obviously zero social media, less messaging apps, use email, um, and and see if the quality of your life doesn't improve, both with your interactions with other human beings and just generally what you notice in the confessional, in prayer, your spiritual life. Are you advancing in sanctity or are you not? And if you are not, can you turn and do you have the objectivity to look at your messaging and social media activities and say, is this is this helping me to advance in sanctity, or is this something that's that's taking me further away from God? Am I constantly having to go to confession about things that happen because of activities on social media? I think the answer to that for almost everyone is pretty obviously in the negative. Well, and it's not something that I, I had thought to connect the two things too. I mean, I, I wanted to lead off with WhatsApp because I wanted to set up a joke about Mark Zuckerberg being looking like a, an androgynous type person. And, and that was something you, we were going to talk about, you know, that's the whole topic of and, androgyny. But the the larger topic of modesty and communication, mm. and we're going to be talking about modesty and dress as well, the two really go together. Modesty as a, a um, constituent virtue within temperance, it's the, the modest person doesn't say or do things that are ostentatious. Oh, I mean, yeah, I'm a smart aleck on Twitter, but that's I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, that that's a little bit different. I'm, I'm being a, a goofball there on purpose, and I don't, I don't think there's any 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 subterfuge about that. Um, that's just my my nature anyway. I'm a goofball who makes a lot of jokes. But the the idea that the the temp the virtue of modesty or the lack thereof comes across both in social slash antisocial media. Yeah. Or the way you dress and present yourself, the way you act with other people, and so, yeah, I, did, I didn't expect this the the overriding theme in, in all of the, the discussions to be modesty, but I, I guess it kind of fits, and even it, even the whole really topic, of, even the yeah. whole topic of androgyny really falls under modesty because <laughs> you can't fall into this androgynous idea and be temperate at the same time. Exactly. Well, and in another thing that that modesty applies to in terms of social media is now this this bizarre um confessional culture in which people are not not only just hanging out their dirty laundry um on social media but you know just just the notion that absolutely everything that you think everything that you do needs to be 
publicly aired and announced and commented upon, um, to me, that seems to be almost directly pointing to notions of modesty. Now, you know, I'm not saying that people should not um, sh- you should never discuss their their feelings, and if if perhaps something is is wrong, or you have concerns, or you're not you're you're feeling sad or whatever, that that you know I'm not I'm not taking this you know German Protestant tack that none of that should ever be discussed, but it should it should only be discussed, I think, in private with with friends with family perhaps with clergy in the confessional or with a spiritual director, if you have one, but this notion of just everybody airing their dirty laundry, this hyper emotionalism. Um, one thing you see a lot on social media and co- in comment boxes too. And this kind of feeds into the, it, it, it's, it's sort of similar. I think comment boxes kind of fit into have their little corner in this conversation hyper-emotionalism, people constantly saying things like, oh my gosh, I watched this video and I cried and cried and cried. Um, first of all, the thing that, that runs through my mind, when you see people reporting online that they cried and cried and cried when they watched something or, you know, any, anything like that, leaving a comment on an essay, oh, I cried and cried and cried. Question number one, are are you serious? Did you really weep? Did you really weep after watching X video or or reading X essay on the internet? Seriously? It's not normal for adult human beings to be constantly weeping, crying, breaking down. This is, this is not normal. There's, we all, we've all seen things. um, Let me think of an example. What's, what's a, what's a recent one that, you know, everybody was making the uh, darn, darn those onions I'm chopping jokes. Um, The, the, the man with, with down syndrome who looks to be about in his fifties, who's at the airport reuniting with his father because he's been away from his father for a week or two weeks. The first time he's ever been away from his father and his father looks to be in his seventies or eighties and the, the down syndrome son and his family being reunited at the airport with his elderly father. Yeah, that, that's something you watch that tiny little video and Yes, dar- darn those onions, darn that ninja that's you know snuck into my house and has been chopping onions, and you know you get a little misty, but you know it, you tear up a little bit, especially if you're a girl. You're more you're more prone to that sort of thing. It's a little bit moving, but it's not. You know, every essay you read, oh, I cried and cried and cried, and every video, oh I, oh, I cried. That's not normal, and you know, people reporting constantly that. They've they've been crying and weeping, and I have to put this on social media and blah. Guys, it's it's not normal for adults to be to be weeping all the time. Weeping is something that should be very very rare in the life of an adult human being. 
Um, and the new thing, the, this new trend, and, and I guess maybe it's a reaction against the impersonalism of all of this online stuff is people seem to be trying to be ostentatious on the other side in terms of, you know, uh, reporting their own hyper emotionalism, which isn't in itself intrinsically healthy. It's one of the nice things about growing up and being an adult is that you really don't cry that much anymore. I remember noticing that when I was a child myself and, you know, I got to, you got to whatever age, um, seven, eight, nine, whatever it is. And I remember, I think I was on the, on the school playground and I tripped, fell and, uh, skinned my knee. And, you know, it hurt and it was, it was no good and it was unpleasant, but I remember that I didn't cry. And I remember stopping and thinking to myself, you know, when I was a little bitty kid, if I would have just fallen down and scraped my knee like this, I would have cried just as a matter of course, as a matter of just being a child of injuring yourself, drawing blood, something happens you and you're a child and you cry. And, re and I remember this time, this instance, and maybe it was the first time where I, I fell down, I skinned my knee, there was blood and I didn't cry. And I thought, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, isn't this nice? You don't, you don't have to cry. It, you just, you just shake it off. Yeah. I fell down. I skinned my knee. It hurt for a second. Yeah. Go to the bathroom, rinse it off. If you need a Band-Aid, put a Band-Aid on it, but you don't have to cry. And having that, having kind of that light bulb go off over your head, hey, you don't have to cry. Um, I think that's important. And it's an important step in, in becoming more mature. And, oh, look what this is circling back to. Now we're getting back to the ideas of people being, being stuck into a perpetual childhood or a perpetual adolescence where these, these hurdles and these markers in terms of psychological and spiritual development, a big one being the fact that you, you stop crying and you have control of your emotions, um, that this you know, now starts to, to manifest itself and people who move healthily into adulthood get past hyper, the, the hyper-emotionalism of childhood. They get past narcissism, which is an intrinsically adolescent mindset, and they, they you know, develop into healthy psycho-spiritual adults. And you don't cry all the time, and you don't think about yourself all the time, and you think of others first before you think of yourself and you and you realize that you know what i am eating for lunch today isn't particularly interesting to anyone else um it's it's mildly interesting to me because i'm the one who's eating the food but um being an adult you realize that nobody else really cares and why should i impose myself on other people and it is, it is an, it is the immodesty of ostentatiousness. It is the immodesty of, of narcissism and self-absorption. It's the, the, the immodesty of not having control of your own emotions. And that all is just coming out into these, uh, social platforms. Well, another word for modesty is decorum. And mm. that's, when you think about it that sense, in that sense, not not typically when we use the word modesty, we're talking about how somebody dresses or lack thereof. But even in even in that context, it is a question of decorum. As a human being who has the dignity of having been redeemed by the blood of Christ, you don't walk around half naked. 
being a source of temptation to other people or even or a source of, of losing their dinner, depending upon who the person is. Indeed. It, you, you have to. <laughs> You have to, you practice that 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 uh, sense of self worth by exercising decorum. Dress appropriately for what's going on, and you don't walk around emotionally half naked. We we don't like children. We get past the point where everything that goes through our mind does not come out of our mouth. Thanks be to God. And then you know the challenge is you're an adult is to you know, advance in sanctity and conform yourself to Christ and be ever more charitable so that eventually even those thoughts that do, that might zip through a person's mind that an adult person would not articulate, eventually it gets to the point where those thoughts are reduced and they don't even occur to you. And, you know, and you don't even have to then engage in this sort of self-censorship or this, this modesty of, of speech and a modesty of emotional display that you just become under control. And guys, it's not to say that you become dead on the inside or don't feel emotions or anything like that. It's just, it's, Every, that's all there and you have normal human affectation, but you are in control of it. You are the master of it. And, you know, these things are, the emotions are subjugated to the rational intellect. Um, that's a, that's, that's a huge point. That's where the word, um, sentimentalism, sentimental, what, what does that mean? Sentimental means putting, putting the 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 intellect underneath subjugating the intellect to sentiment to emotions um and so when when you have that when emotions are driving everything emotions come first and then any any logical reasoned rational thought is subjugated to the emotions what you end up with is what we what we see in our culture around us today social justice warriors novus orderism you could go on and on and on about you know how everybody is just a slave to their fee wings and that's all that matters it's not we're not saying at by any stretch that that you should not have emotions in fact there's something seriously seriously wrong with people who do not have the normal spectrum of human affectation including sadness we've talked about this before one of the qualities of diabolical narcissists is because they do not because they have purged themselves of charity of love one of the things that goes straight out the window when you do that is the capacity for sadness the capacity to mourn that's why our lord says in the beatitudes blessed are those who mourn because in order to mourn, you first have to be able to love. Diabolical narcissists never mourn. They are angry. They're, they experience anger, hatred, jealousy, and fear, but they do not experience sadness, interestingly enough. Um, and so the capacity to mourn is, is, is very important. However, that all needs to be under control, contextualized. The rosary, as we've been discussing, you, you, um, you process the events of your life through the rosary, which is to say that it's extraordinarily helpful is just the understatement of the episode. Um, you, can, you can process all these things and reconcile all these things and see how good and growth and maturity and learning and understanding and conforming oneself to Christ comes even out of the bad things, even out of, even out of sadness. So there's a tremendous capacity to, especially with, in terms of our Lord's passion, 
sadness and the passion go together. That's why he's called the man of sorrows. And our lady is, is our lady of sorrows with, you know, the, the imagery, the iconography of seven swords piercing her heart. Do you think that these, do you think that our Lord and our lady, that their lives here on earth were not just filled with, with sadness? Of course, of course it was. And it's precisely because our Lord is himself love and precisely because Our Lady is the mother of divine love, that um, that that capacity for healthy, normal affectation and sadness was absolutely an integral part of their lives here on earth. And thinking about the rosary, too, yesterday was the feast of Our Lady of Fatima. Yes. Um, one of the many apparitions of Our Lady reminding us many times again, pray the rosary, because through the rosary and the scapular devotions, you know, stay close to Mary and, and you'll come out of the other end okay. If you look at the look at look at the apostles, all of them ran away except one, and John stayed faithful because he stayed close to Mary. That's right. It's, it's pretty easy. In this time of massive confusion, multiple bishops wearing white, and what does it all mean? Um, how about you just stay faithful to Mary? She's not going to steer you wrong. That's right. It's absolutely true. And one of the things that uh, Marian devotion yields is without any doubt or question, modesty and dress, which this was, this is one of the main topics that we had on our outline for this episode. This has been kind of in the news a little bit. Um, there have been, there's always, this is one of those things that on Catholic blogs, they say, you know, talking about veiling, talking about modesty of dress, this is something that'll inevitably just make the comm box explode. So we figured here we are, it's the middle of May, it's getting ready to, to get hot, it's getting ready to warm up and it bears, it bears discussion, modesty of dress. So Shall we? Shall we jump into this? <laughs> well, we, we got a lot of feedback over the whole drugs discussion, and and at some point we are going to loop back around to that and, uh, and talk to talk about some of the emails. Just not this episode, but mm -hmm. it's not like we're coming up with topics to say, "Ooh, what can get more feedback this time?" Yeah, it's it's just been something that people have been asking about, and what are what are my thoughts on it? Um, and speaking speaking as a female and all that kind of good stuff. Um, Speaking to the ladies, uh, the big the big issue is what. Well, obviously, in terms of the the bosom area, no cleavage, just no cleavage, please. You don't need to have anything like that showing ever. So the the there are rules that people have about you know how many inches beneath the um what's that indentation right in your throat where the kind of where your is it the nape of the neck um is nape of the neck is the back of your neck that's the nape where your where your hairline is on the back of your neck so if you had ladies don't have adam's apples but kind of that where that little indentation is right below if we had an adam's apple right, it would be right below that and then it's like three finger widths beneath that is is as low as your neckline should probably go just the rule is you shouldn't be there should be no sight of cleavage that is a big deal to men and it it kind of goes without saying come on and you should wear um i believe that in this day and age ladies should wear good bras and they should you should not be able to see 
anatomical outlines. You know, there's just no reason for that. There's no reason for that anymore. Um, you should you should wear things that conceal anatomical structures. You know, on the thorax, you should just you shouldn't be able to see that. And if you can, you need to go and spend some money, invest in you know, get new bras and get bras that are modest and cover you and keep everything where it needs to be. And, and I absolutely believe that that is a function of modesty. Um, now the big thing for men is the, the waist and immediately below the waist. So in terms of skirt lengths, you, you should be at the knee at least, um, really above the knee, it's, it's just getting harder and harder for me to justify how, you know, any woman who is a woman, in fact, who is not a prepubescent girl, who is not an absolute child, should be wearing anything that is in any way significantly above the knee. Um, I wore for years uh, skorts, and so I would have these skorts, and they would hit for the summertime when it was really hot, and they would hit right just right above the knee, but they had shorts built into the bottom of them. And I don't wear them out anymore. I just wear them around the house in the summer um, because you really, really, really need to have those skirts at the knee or, or lower. It's not saying you need to be wearing, you know, Amish shapeless gunny sack, potato sack, things all the way down to your ankles. I mean, not that there's anything there, wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. There are some ankle length skirts that are really cute. And that can actually be a very good option in the summer when it's hot, because you it, that can be, you know, if, if it's kind of a rushed, roughly, what's the word for that kind of wrinkly fabric, it can be a very, very thin fabric. But if it's if it's wrinkly and gathered, then, you know, it's not transparent. You can't see through it. And so it actually becomes a, a good option for the summer. Um, but the, the big, big, big thing that I've learned about female attire with regards to what you wear on the bottom half of your body is that apparently men are just driven visually up a wall and are hyper stimulated by the sight of a woman's backside. A woman wearing pants is what we're basically saying. So a woman's backside where her legs connect up into her pelvis. Apparently, I didn't realize this for men, this is every bit as, as visually stimulating as the sight of cleavage is. And so I think really with, and my rule has been thus for quite a long time now that if on the rare, rare occasions when I am wearing trousers, it's almost always during the winter when it's really cold, um, you know, and I want to wear, you know, pants and then usually with boots, with heavy boots, the rule is, is that I have to be wearing some sort of a jacket, coat, duster, whatever, so that my my butt is covered. Always, 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 always cover the butt. You should women should not be outside walking around with their with their butt, with their backside completely exposed in a trouser sense. Um, so that that connection of the legs up into the pelvis from the back is visible. Uh, that is something that we should as a as a friendship and consideration to 
to the men of this world that we should not do that to them any more than we would walk around and any more than any sane woman would not walk around with with her bosoms hanging out we we can understand how that is a that's just a horrible thing to do to a man to do that um don't it's you got to get through your mind this whole idea about the lower body thing and so it it actually makes it easier you know you can you wear you wear a nice skirt you wear something like that and, and a lot of times i mean just only when it's super duper duper hot in the summer am i not wearing some sort of a jacket or some sort of a duster and a duster is like a very is like is a sweater but it's it almost like a cardigan, but it goes down. Some of them go to the knee. Some of them go just above the knee. That's what a duster is. And boy, those are so comfortable and so easy to wear. And many of them are very flattering. You know, they'll have kind of an hourglass shaping to them so that they come in at the waist and then flare out. Oh, that's so flattering. Why would you not want to wear something like that? And it's so interesting. Isn't it interesting that for women, clothes that are that are truly modest are actually incredibly beautiful and incredibly flattering. So, you know, you've got a fit and flare waist on a beautiful dress or a beautiful skirt. That makes you look even prettier. Running around in yoga pants makes you look like a cow. And this is what just floors me. And I think we've discussed this before. When I was, say, you know, in junior high school and so forth, when, when you know, we were 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, and you're buying jeans, you know, every year you would buy a, a one or two pairs of jeans for the new school year. And buying jeans was just this absolute ordeal because you just keep trying on and trying on and looking at yourself in the dressing room, in the, th- in the you know, three-angled mirror and looking at yourself and looking at how they made you look, does this make me look fat? Are the pockets right? Is this flattering? Is this not flattering? I, I am continually amazed at this culture, hypersexual, hyper, um, you know, everything social media, obviously, everybody's taking all these pictures, all of this materialism and, and somatic obsession, obsession with the body and so forth. And as I just see people and young people walking around and walking the streets, it never ceases to amaze me how completely comfortable, especially young women and girls are today with wearing clothes that make them look like absolute cows. They just look like cows. And they aren't even necessarily cows. It's just they're wearing the most unflattering thing you could possibly wear. So, you know, the girl who's who's not skinny, who's not anorexic by any means, who's who's got a little flesh around her waist and so forth, if she would wear something, if she would wear a cute dress or a cute skirt or something like that, instead of the yoga pants that she's wearing that are, you know, cutting in and then she's got rolls of fat hanging out, hanging over the waistband. I mean, yeah, she she should probably lose a few pounds, sure, but more than more than that, why don't you just wear some clothes that don't hyper accentuate 
the fact that you do need to lose 10 pounds. I mean, it just just doesn't make any sense to me. And so they're walking around. So you've got on one side, this Kardashian-esque culture where everyone's, uh, you know, obsessed about these things. But on the other hand, I see people walking around and, and men too, dressed like absolute slobs, dressed in things that are so unflattering, so immodest, and oftentimes things that I, I can honestly say, I would not sleep. I would not sleep in clothes that I see people wearing almost, you know, going to appointments. And it seems like they're coming and going from work and, you know, going into churches and, and museums and places like that, wearing clothes that I wouldn't even sleep in. And you just think, what is going on with this absolutely bizarre bipolar physical aesthetic where on one hand the the pop culture is is taking it all the way to one side with like i said the kardashian-esque culture but then on the other side the people day to day walking the streets i mean how how often when do you see anymore a man in his 20s wearing wearing I mean, never mind a suit, wearing, wearing a sport coat to work. Um, you, you just don't see it anymore. And it's all a sign of a degradation of culture. And it is a form of immodesty. I, I think it's immodest. It is a species of immodesty for anyone, male or female, to leave the house looking like a damn slob. It is, a, it is immodest for a woman to go outside wearing de facto pajamas. It is immodest for someone to go outside wearing some you know, bizarre outfit where, you know, you're wearing a t-shirt with a slogan on it in one color and a completely unrelated something on the bottom, pants, shorts, skirt, whatever on the bottom and wearing, you know, Crocs or or flip-flops or any, this is a species, I believe, of a modesty. And it's all rooted in a lack of charity and a lack of consideration for your, for your fellow man. You should be dressed. You should be put together. You should be groomed. Your hair should be clean. It should be combed. Women, it should, it should not be greasy. It should be, um, you know, done up bound in 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 some way meaning it shouldn't be hanging down in your face that sort of a thing um there's there's an obligation to not look like a slob and it is immodest you know to walk out with bedhead in de facto pajamas because it just what it telegraphs is that you just simply do not care about other people you don't care and that's a problem even just walking out the door, you should have enough consideration for other people that you should be doing your best to make yourself presentable. I'm not saying that you need to be the most beautiful woman or the most handsome man on the face of the earth, but for you, you need to be presentable. This is also um, being overweight as a function of this. Being overweight, and uh, again, I'm excluding what people who have genuine, like, thyroid or whatever kind of condition such that they they bloat and that's not their their fault per se they're literally sick and it's causing them to be overweight that's not what i'm talking about 
I'm talking about the inconsideration. Not only is it, is it abusive to, to the self, but it's, it is an inconsideration for you to present yourself out in public and you're fat and your clothes don't fit and you don't fit in the airplane seat and you have excessive body odor because you're overweight and on and on and on and on. That's also rooted in an inconsideration and, and a species of immodesty in that sense. So we can go on and on about this. Do you have anything you want to say? Well, I mean, my word for the podcast is decorum and all the words related to that propriety, what's proper, what's decent, what's correct, what's appropriate. I mean, mm -hmm. all of this goes together with you, you can say this at a purely you know secular level. And you, you, you made the comment about someone not wearing a sports jacket outside of people in sales. I don't see people dress up that that's you about know. it. Yeah. And, and they just and even uh, then it's it's not because it's necessarily what they would would do. It's what salespeople are supposed to do. It's what's correct. It's it's the proper decorum for a salesperson when you're going to pitch a uh, you know C level executives on on some product that we want you to spend six or seven figures on for the next three years, uh, yeah. some service from our company. You're going to wear a suit and a tie. Yeah, because absolutely. that's what's expected. That's what's appropriate. Mm-hmm. I love especially finding um, old photographs, old videos, and there's there's an entire genre of these really, really old, you don't even call them videos, they're films made in the very early 20th century of, you know, New York City in 1911 or, you know, streets of Paris in 1919, something like that. Or a Sunday and, afternoon baseball game in New York yeah. in 19, 1955. The, the, oh, the baseball stadium ones. Absolutely. When every man in the picture is wearing a suit and tie and wearing a fedora and every woman is wearing a gorgeous dress because it's 1955 and, oh, women's clothes were really good in the 40s and 50s. They were that fit and flair, just absolutely gorgeous. But the, but then you look at the stuff that's even earlier than that and you you see the, the films from the very early 20th century and you just see how dressed people are every single person including you know fishwives and all the way from the rich the millionaire's wife all the way down to the fishwife everyone is just is dressed in clothing clothing so formal that i don't i don't even own anything my fanciest fanciest clothes don't even approach what people were wearing just to leave the house to go out to do the shopping in the first two or three decades of the 20th century. It's absolutely astounding to watch those films because of decorum, because of propriety. You just simply did not go out. You did not leave your house unless you were dressed. And that and that goes all the way down to to the most the most humble poor people, you still were wearing decent clothing. Uh, you, you didn't have, you didn't have 50 different outfits. You might've only had two, but, and then, you, you know, you had a series of under, underclothes and undergarments, then you just kept changing the undergarments, but the overgarments, you would maybe only have um, one, two, perhaps three different different overgarments that you could wear. And there wasn't any shame in that. There wasn't any shame in especially a poorer person being seen wearing basically the same thing every day. 
that's okay. And, you know, it's interesting if you think about it and as, as certainly as I get older and, you know, you get your, your wardrobe tends to move towards exactly that. You just move back to where you kind of get settled into kind of one kind of look and a lot of it involves black and, and dark blue just because it's flattering and easy to wear and easy to maintain and easy to clean. Um, and you end up and you've, you you kind of wear basically the same thing, maybe a, maybe in the summer, the same kind of shift underdress. And then what you change up are basically accessories. In the winter, you change your scarf, you change, you know, accent with me I wear I wear a lot of hats so you know you can wear basically the same black dress outfit and you can you can turn it into a completely different outfit by just changing the hat you know um so there's that to be said that, but the notion that you have to have 50 to 100 different outfits in your in your wardrobe in your closet very modern and the truth of the matter is if you're if you're left to your own devices and you just settle into your own schedule, um, especially ladies with regards to clothes for men, I mean, I'm kind of preaching to the choir to the men because most most men have their kind of outfit, either, you know, jeans and a polo, khakis and a button down collared shirt, something like that. And it's just always basically a variant of that. Um, with women, it's it, there's so much more variety in clothing, but you figure out very quickly that on a daily driver basis, you can settle into kind of a, a quote unquote uniform and then just make slight variations to that. And it, it really does make like, life easier. Well, with regard to men's dress, simply changing ties goes a long way mm -hmm. too. The same suit, you know, change change the shirt, but uh, just simply changing the the tie, or you get, you know, one or two good sports jackets, you can mix and match those with any number of shirts and, and pants. Some some consideration for <laughs> the gaudiness of colors, and some of them don't quite go together. But simply changing the tie can go a long way too, making outfits look different too. I've forgotten ties, right? That's the world's greatest accessory. You're exactly right. You could wear exactly the same thing every day: wear khaki slacks, white button-down uh, collared shirt, and let's say a navy blue sport coat. And all you would have to do is change the tie. And that would be it. Lucky you guys. So, <laughs> and I do, I do have a tie or two and I do wear ties on occasion. Um, as people know, that's one of the trademarks from some of my videos is I would tend to wear a tie. And um, it is, it's, 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 it's one of the best and most practical accessories there is. And it's cheap living. You know, you can roll into any of the discount, you know, um, discount, what do you call them? Department stores, you know, Dillard's, Macy's, whatever's left now. Um, and, you know, cr cruise the men's, cruise the menswear department. There's always a um, for sale table of uh, heavily discounted ties that they're trying to get rid of. And I always, you know, I always go look, I always go look because a lot of times what tends to be on the heavily discounted necktie table is girly ties, pastels, your pinks, any sort of a floral print, anything like that. Obviously, that's not, a lot of men are not going to want those kind of ties, but it might be something that's really good for me. So I always go go and cruise. And if you can get a really pretty, you know, like pink, pink floral, um, if I could get a pink floral silk tie for 19 bucks, 
yeah, that's kind of a no brainer. I'll do that. And then that gives me, ta-da, that gives me a new outfit. So there you go. I was just commenting the other day that I need to get more ties as well, but pink and floral is definitely not on the menu. No, no, not for you. <laughs> Super mommy would not approve of that, I dare say. So She might laugh to- unless, unless uh, I was being serious about wearing it, in which case the laugh, laughter stops at that point. The only way that you, Super Nerd, get away with the pink tie is if you wear it on Gaudete and Leitari Sundays, but you only get it for two Sundays a year. So no, there no, you no. Go. That's, that's a rose tie, not a pink tie. That is rose, exactly. Liturgical rose or liturgical salmon, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy topics we get into. Um, have we pretty much beaten the modesty topic to death or no? Yeah, I think so. Well, no, you, then- did have a, you did have something you wanted to talk about androgyny, though. Well, androgyny, yeah. Um, it 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 does go hand in hand. And speaking of hand in hand, the thing that I've noticed, and I, I have to concede that at this point, this has become so uh, ubiquitous, and especially among younger people. Uh, not not well. I see. I see androgyny amongst older people and older couples, but it's because of what they're wearing. The thing that really freaks me out is I am noticing more and more seeing young people walking down the street that I'll look and I will not be able to instantly pick out which one is the male. Um, or they'll, I'll look at, a, at, at two young people walking down the street, let's say hand in hand, obviously walking down the street as a couple. And I won't be able to instantly tell if it's a male and a female or if it's two lesbians. Um, and the reason for this is because what I'm seeing, and it, I, it's just become undeniable at this point, is that the body types of young men are becoming more and more and more feminine. I'm seeing more and more and more young men with who aren't even especially overweight but are sporting moobs, man boobs, who have broad hips, broad feminine hips, and and some of them even have a drawn-in waist that then flares out into a broader hip. Um, and you'll look at them, and you'll look at the face, and there's a con- and there there's obviously not any sort of heavy facial hair or anything you can't you can't look at the face and see a five o'clock shadow or anything like that and this whole business of these young men becoming physiognomically androgynous and then they play it up with the clothes that they wear um i'm seeing more and more men walking around in basically what i would call yoga pants um i'm seeing in terms i see more of this with older men i'll see like a a couple walking down the street who are in their 60s and 70s and they'll they'll look exactly alike the wife will have the same six dollar haircut as her husband short 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 the husband will be wearing the, the one the one that i hate that just jumps out at you and is the worst manifestation of this, I think, is capri pants. This business of men wearing capri pants, which is a new, a new fad. So you've got a, a man and his wife who are in their 60s and, or 70s who are walking down the street who have basically the same haircut and are wearing almost exactly the same clothing. So they're wearing, you know, just kind of a nondescript t-shirt 
thing on the top, capri pants on the bottom, and then the same, you know, like trekking sandals or Birkenstocks or something like that. They're basically wearing exactly the same thing. Um, so you have the that sort of androgyny. Then with the younger men, it's just it seems to me that the the male physiognomy is being dissolved, literally being dissolved. And I think it's absolutely within the realm of normal, reasonable thought and inquiry to ask the question, are the young men of today being being physically feminized by all of the birth control hormones that women have been peeing into the water supply for the last 50 going on 60 years now since since most women of breeding age in the post-christian west are on the pill um are we now seeing the fruits of this where boys their masculinity is just being being hormonally dissolved by this. I don't have, obviously this is a scientific question. There's a scientific answer to this, uh, but I, I think this bears serious examination. Then you factor into that, not just the physiognomical, but then physiological and physiognomical, but then you, you listen to boys talk and we, we, what was that? The last episode or two episodes ago, we were talking about the up-talking soy boys and these men who, and, and I think to some extent it's chosen, but they cho they choose to have such a feminine uh, tone to their voice, to do the up-talking, um, to just have a higher tone of voice, to have this everything about them being so, as submissive and feminine and soft. Um, so yeah, it's it's the androgyny that I see just every day among average people, we're not even talking about drag queens or anything like that. Everyday run-of-the-mill androgyny that I'm seeing amongst teenagers and young adults is, is disturbing. It's truly disturbing. I don't have anything else to add to that other than I completely agree that it's disturbing. And we're not even talking about situations where people are, are crossing uh, gender normative um, assignment at this point so to speak mm -hmm. right that's it's that's a, an entirely different kettle of fish that's a that's a different kettle of fish this is just normal day to day um and you just you just think where where are the young men with the broad shoulders and the the traps and the narrow waists and you you just aren't seeing much of that anymore at all um so i don't know it's just it's just another another layer on the on the of icing on the cake of why why contraceptive why oral contraceptives why hormonal contraceptives should obviously be made illegal asap banned and you know after the triumph of the immaculate heart obviously those things will all be illegal again and we should all pray earnestly for that day absolutely um like i said i've got nothing else to add to that did, you did, probably don't see, do, I mean, do you see much of it in your IT culture or? Not really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if it, even if it was there, we tend to be uh, chatting on Slack anyway, so we're not talking to people face to face. Uh, there you go. <laughs> nice recall. Nice to bring, nice way to bring it back to the beginning. 
Anyway, if you'd like to chat with Anne, uh, Slack is not an option, but email is. The email address is podcast at barnhart.biz. Mass is for Anne's benefactors every single day of the week. And once a week, there is a Requiem Mass said for all of Anne's benefactors. Please uh, remember all the priests no, who are saying... No, the Requiem Mass is for every, everyone who's died in the previous week. Everyone. See, see, this is what happens when I don't actually read what I wrote here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Requiem Mass is for everybody, not just benefactors. And uh, please pray for the priests. They definitely need our prayers tremendously. The Barnhart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you found something of value in this or previous episodes and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com for more details. And that's what Blaine, William, PMJ, Marianne did via PayPal and James R. via the, the uh, mailbox. Thank you very much. And I'll let you talk about Matthew 1720. Matthew 1720 intention, of course, is our initiative with regards to the horrific situation in Rome um, that anti-Pope Bergoglio be uh, full fasting twice a week if you can, or some sort of a fasting something, whatever you can do twice a week. And obviously for your daily, daily prayer and rosary intention, that Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-Pope and the whole thing be nullified. That Pope Benedict XVI Ratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living Pope since April of 2005. That Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace, and someday achieve the beatific vision. And that also Pope Benedict XVI repent, die in a state of grace, and someday also achieve the beatific vision. And we can all, if we all make it, we can all have a wonderful get together and uh <laughs> and uh maybe even hopefully a, a, a kind of sort of a good laugh about boy that that sure was crazy wasn't it but and we proper decorum get... will be observed at that point and proper decorum will be observed and everyone will be modestly dressed yes of course <laughs> until next time i am super nerd and i'm Anne. thanks guys god bless